As a church, we've been working through a sermon series on Jesus' call for us to love our enemies in an age of violence. We've explored for the, for the last few weeks, four weeks or so, Jesus' actions toward those who confronted him and his response to the Jewish belief that the Messiah would come as a warrior king in order to conquer the Gentiles, making essentially the Jewish people a great nation over all the other nations. And then we looked at his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount specifically, as well as his teachings through the rest of the Gospels. Now, as I've said before, and I'm going to stress it again, Jesus teaches an awful lot on this subject. As a matter of fact, I actually think it's one of the most dominant themes in the New Testament. I believe that's because of how central it is to how we live our faith and how we, we become different than the world around us. You see, Jesus never called us to withdraw from culture, nor does he call us to judge the culture around us and wag our finger at it. I would even go as far to say that Jesus has never postured his church to try and control the government or to conquer anyone in order to become some kind of a Christian nation. Instead, I actually think the past four weeks I've shown us that Jesus is called, that he calls us to love our enemies, to posture ourselves in a way that shows people the ways of Jesus, and to be willing to serve others even when we think that they don't deserve it. Essentially, through his teachings on loving our enemies, Jesus is showing us how to live within the kingdom of God in a world that is full of violence. If we simply respond to violence with violence, then we end up being no different than the world around us. Jesus calls for a much bigger transformation that changes the way we see the world around us, and it compels us by the Spirit to love those who seem unlovable. So this week, I want to continue to build for you the biblical evidence of this transformative call of loving our enemies. Except today we're going to leave the gospel narrative and begin to take a look at how the disciples began to live Jesus' teachings. Now, I hope to show you uh, the scriptural evidence that these concepts were not just something Jesus taught and that the church just kind of threw out and never lived. In fact, they were central to the life of the early church and the teachings of the apostles. It's important to understand that the early church actually embraced the Jewish belief that God had called Abraham and his descendants to be God's special people in order to bless all the nations. They still took God's promise in Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 seriously. They accepted the basic Jewish apocalyptic uh, expectations of a messianic time when the kingdom of God would arrive in power to defeat evil and bring dramatic restoration. But their conviction that Jesus was actually their long-expected Messiah and that he had in his life, his death and resurrection, already inaugurated but not yet completed the kingdom of God it profoundly transformed their understanding of all of these things. They no longer defined the kingdom in terms of the Torah food laws, sacrifices at the temple, or an exclusive relationship with Abraham's descendants. Instead, they believed that because of Jesus, all people are equally welcome in Jesus' new messianic kingdom. 
Now, this was a drastic shift in thinking, one that caused a lot of problems for the early church, mostly because their story it no longer included any reference to the national, racial, or geographical liberation of Israel. They no longer defined holiness by the Torah. Instead, it was defined by living life, how Jesus had taught them to live it. So to the early church, when they used kingdom language, it had, it had nothing to do with the vindication of ethnic Israel, the overthrow of Roman rule in Pal Palestine, the building of a new temple on Mount Zion, the establishment of Torah ob observations or observance, or the nations flocking to Mount Zion. Instead, everything they did and taught was centered around the teachings and the life of Jesus. Now, I say all of this for an important reason. I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Imagine if everything you'd been taught was now in question and you have to let go of everything you think you know and learn a completely new framework for how to live and what to believe. Folks, this is exactly what was going on in the early church. Instead of conquering the Romans, Jesus called them to invite them into their new reality. Now, think about that. Imagine knowing that in order to live the faith you believe that you believe in now, it involves inviting your arch enemy into the church service, into your community, and directly into your life. Well, that's exactly what Jesus teaches his disciples to do. Jesus says that in order to live the peace, the shalom he calls each of us to, we must embrace our enemies and learn to love them as children of God, just like everyone else. And we see this dramatic change happen within the early church. In Acts chapter 10, we come across the story about Peter and a man named Cornelius. Essentially, at this point in history, uh, the church and the apostles haven't fully embraced the tension of inviting their enemies into the fold. And so Jesus has to intervene and send Peter. Now, both Peter and a Gentile man named Cornelius receive visions from God that, that call them to do something crazy. You see, God wants Cornelius to reach out to Peter and invite him over to his house. And then Peter receives confirmation that Cornelius is coming. God very distinctly tells Peter that this is what he wants to happen, knocking down the barriers between Gentiles and the Jews. Now today, I'm not going to dig into this story too much because Tamil and I will talk about it a few weeks from now. But understand this. This is the first time that a Jew has gone and stayed with a Gentile, shared food with a Gentile, and shared the good news of the gospel of peace with the exact people that Peter had been taught the Messiah would conquer. Now, even more crazy than this, these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, just like Peter and his Jewish counterparts did. Like, listen to the narrative in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the story that I was just explaining to you, listen to what it says in verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then Peter asked, can anyone object to them being baptized now that they received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And afterward, Cornelius, a Roman person, a Gentile, Cornelius asked Peter, a Jew, to stay with him for several days. You see, the very people who Peter was taught all his life to avoid, to hate, to wag a finger at, God has now poured his spirit out on them and they are baptized in the name of Jesus. They are now followers of the same Jesus that Peter follows. Folks, this is pretty obvious biblical evidence that what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, what he taught his disciples all through the gospel narratives to do as his followers is now being lived out by those in the early church. And, and it's messy and it's difficult for the Jewish believers to grasp, but they continuously work through it because they know that it's what Jesus called them to do, to love their enemies and to be a witness of God's love to the world around them. Let's take a moment and jump out of the narrative of Acts and into Paul's writings. The Apostle Paul, he captures the heart of Jesus's teachings on peace and its relation to both Jew and Gentile, and what it accomplishes in his letter to the church in Ephesus. If we read Ephesus, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 14. For Christ himself has brought us peace. He's brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body... In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. You see, Paul points out that the gospel of peace, which is what he often calls the good news of Jesus, unites Jews and Gentiles into one people that literally the way of hostility has been broken down so that they're no longer separate or enemies. Instead, Paul says that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has reconciled both groups to God and put to death the hostility between them. By this, Paul means the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now, this is revolutionary, and the church is living this out. They have opened the doors to the Christian faith to their enemies, just like Jesus called them to. Paul says that because of this, we can now all come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. And Paul calls this in verse 17, the gospel of peace. Now, think about this for a sec. Paul is telling us and showing us what the good news accomplishes when it is shared to the world. It accomplishes peace. It moves mountains in a way that no other message can. It reconciles enemies to each other so they can live at peace with each other. Now, if this is what the Bible says the gospel does, then let me ask you something. 
what is the North American church preaching? It sure doesn't seem like the message of the church, that the message of the church today brings people together. If anything, it seems to create more division. So what's going on? Why does the church today spend all of this time bickering on the sidelines or playing politics instead of transforming the world? I would challenge the church today by saying that we might be preaching a gospel of complacency, individualism, prosperity, and hate rather than peace. We can't even find peace with each other, let alone with our enemies. The reason I say this is simple. We often ignore Jesus' teachings from the gospel, and we don't even notice that all of the New Testament teaches exactly what Jesus taught, that we have to read all of it through the lens of who it is all actually about, which is Jesus. Everything the early church lived was centered in the person and the life and the teachings of Jesus. Now, let me show you just how dominant the teachings of Paul and Peter mirror Jesus' teachings on peace from the Sermon on the Mount. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives brief instructions on how Christians should live. He says in chapter 5, verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now that sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, when Jesus rejects the basic Old Testament teaching of an eye for an eye. Now, Paul says that this teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, it's how Christians should live, and it extends to all of our relationships. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, Paul says something that sounds a lot like Jesus. He says, when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Now, this sure sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, when he tells us not to respond to others with hostility. Let's look at that verse in today's context. Notice Paul says, when we are persecuted, we endure it, and when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Yet, we see churches claiming that scripture calls them to fight back against the authorities, claiming that we need to fight when being persecuted. Sounds like the opposite, actually, of what Jesus and Paul teach. And I would say with confidence that we are not even being persecuted in our North American context right now. Wait till we actually are. Then then there's Peter. Good old zealous Peter. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Now, this sure sounds a lot like how Jesus calls us to deal with evil by responding with love. Now, lastly, let's look at Paul's writings to the church in Rome. This is a book that many use out of context to promote poor theology. In Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, Paul says this. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think that you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. 
Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Now, doesn't this sound just like what Jesus has already taught us? Paul is teaching us how to respond to our enemies, those who persecute you. He says, don't repay evil with evil, just like Peter said in 1 Peter and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says we should never seek revenge, insisting that the call for Christians to forego vengeance doesn't mean that evil will remain forever unpunished. That Actually, he says that God, who is infinite, and not limited like us finite humans, has the perfect combination of love and justice when he punishes evil. In other words, we're not actually able to see things the way that God does, and so we judge wrongly, and we should leave vengeance up to God. Paul, he, he also tells us to feed our enemies, to give them something to drink if they're thirsty, essentially combat evil with good. This is how Paul describes how Christians should live in a world that is full of violence. And it echoes the teachings of Jesus. Because it's Jesus that Paul calls us to follow. So he's simply teaching his churches about the one who we are called to be like. The one we're called to follow. Jesus. Now the interesting thing is that all of these passages are written in a time where the church is struggling to actually figure things out. There's conflict and people teaching all kinds of different things about how the, the church should go about living. Many were calling the Gentile Christians to become like Jews, to live by the law first, then they could become followers of Jesus. So when Paul or Peter writes these letters to the churches, they're, they're actually attempting to remind everyone what Jesus had taught and to center their lives and their understanding around the life and teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus is the center of it all, and Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, to offer food to the hungry, and, to wa and water to the thirsty, no matter who they are or what they might have done. This concept in the New Testament is really about learning to live what the Jews call the life of shalom. To be at peace with God and others in such a way that you're placing your entire trust in Jesus. To live your life the way Jesus calls us to, and to actually believe that Jesus will do everything he promises. That Jesus is the one that's in control, that he knows the bigger picture, and we do not. So instead of taking control, we live our lives by trust, by faith in the one who created the heavens and the earth. The one who came as a man and experienced life as we know it, but didn't give in to temptation. You see, Jesus shows us exactly how to live right with God, how to treat others and how to love unconditionally, even when we've been wronged. And the New Testament continually echoes exactly what Jesus lived, and it calls us to live our lives centered in Jesus to read scripture the way Jesus did, with a posture of love and compassion for those who are less fortunate. 
The New Testament does not endorse a response of violence or fighting back. It, it's just not there. And the early Christians never once used violence to solve any of their problems. For over a hundred years, the New Testament church not once used violence to fight against evil. Instead, they placed their trust in Jesus and welcomed their enemy to the table and learned to love the unlovable. Finding peace with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit leads us to live at peace with others and moves us into a life of shalom, inner and outer peace that only trusting Jesus can provide. We as the church need to learn to live life by the Spirit again. We need to practice our faith by practicing confession and repentance, by listening to the convictions of the Holy Spirit and learning to live our lives the way Jesus taught his disciples to live. This means we have to give up our push for individualism, give up our lives by surrendering to Jesus. Surrendering our control, giving up our need for power, repenting of the critical spirits that we often have, and instead place our trust in the one who created it all. The New Testament writers knew that the only way to live a life of shalom was to die to self and to live for Jesus. Are you ready to give it all away so that you can find peace? Next week, we're going to look at some of the verses that some of us use to claim that violence is okay when there are certain circumstances. Like the concept of just war, where people use specific scripture to justify war as an option that God allows. And so I'm going to show you next week that this concept just doesn't fit with the teachings of the New Testament at all. But now I'm going to turn things over to Tamil as we practice and reflect on what we have learned from the New Testament today. Ephesians 2 verse 14 tells us that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the source of the peace that we have within ourselves, and he's the source of peace that exists between us and others. Now there's some obvious tension here because even though we know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he came bringing the gospel of peace, that in him we have peace with God and peace with others, the truth is that we all struggle to really live this out in practice. So as we wrap up this morning, let's take a few minutes to pray for God's peace to invade those areas of our lives where we struggle to experience it. Where do you need to experience God's peace in your own life, within yourself today? Hold that before God in prayer now. And now think about a personal relationship that you've been struggling with or experiencing conflict in. What would it look like for the peace of Christ to break through in that situation? Take a minute now to pray for that relationship. And now think of a group of people that you've been critical of or judgmental towards. What would it look like for the peace of Christ to break down that division that separates you? Take a minute to pray that the peace of Christ would tear down the wall of hostility that keeps you apart.
He is our peace. May you experience and extend God's peace to everyone you encounter this week.